From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Varicose veins and peripheral artery disease, two common blood vessel problems. One is cosmetic. The other is a sign of a more serious condition. We'll find out which one requires treatment. People live on the average longer, maybe as much as seven years longer, when they have varicose veins than if they don't. It turns out that people who make varicose veins are better at making other kinds of blood vessels. You want to find a bunch of old people, you go find people who've got varicose veins. Also on the program, advice on how you can get more out of your next health care visit. And restless leg syndrome. It's a common cause of insomnia. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, they always show up uninvited, and like unwelcome company, they're usually hard to get rid of. We're talking about varicose veins, those gnarled and enlarged veins that most often appear on your legs and feet. For most people, varicose veins are just largely a cosmetic concern, but for some, varicose veins can cause aching and discomfort, and occasionally they can lead to serious problems. Here to talk about varicose veins, what causes them and how they're treated, is Dr. Tom Rook. Dr. Rook is a specialist in cardiovascular diseases at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Rook. We're glad to have you here. Glad to be here. Thank you, Tom. Good to have you. So they're unsightly, and they usually come on with age. What causes these things? Why do we get, why do our veins bulge out when we get older? (laughs) Well, you know, this is something we don't always know the answer to. Probably the biggest answer is that it's genetics, uh, that that we all, uh, people who develop varicose veins have a tendency to get varicose veins from their ancestors here. But we do know that there's a lot of other additional factors that can contribute. Everything from prolonged standing to obesity uh, to, to blood clots that may have occurred in the veins in the past, all of these things can can lead to the development of uh, varicose veins. Is it why I don't want to cross my legs? When well, you say, know, don't that's, cross a, your legs. that's a little bit of an old wives' tale. I you know, know it. The varicose veins are actually, I tell women, are, are in fact hereditary. You get them from your kids because, you know, that's, <laughs> I always hear that, you know, Doc, I had beautiful legs till baby one, baby two, baby three, and mm-hmm. now look at them. So, you know, the reason you get them isn't always necessarily straightforward. The other thing is that there seems to be a very definite relationship between varicose veins and hormones. You know, the three times that, uh, for example, in a woman's life that she'll get varicose veins are first at puberty. You really don't get varicose veins before puberty. Second time you get them, and you get them with a vengeance, is during pregnancy when the hormones... uh, uh, when the estrogens and progesterones are typically elevated. But curiously, the third time that you tend to form them, especially spider veins, is around the perimenopausal period. And we mm. make a joke that's not really a joke, that every hot flash gives you a new spider vein. Uh, it's sort of, you know, not <laughs> I true. I do not think uh, that is funny at all, sir. Exactly, except that it certainly seems that way for a lot of patients. But is it uh, weakening of the wall of the vein? Is well, that... You know, this used to be a classic theory, was that it was a weakening of the wall of the vein, a degeneration, and I think in some cases it's probably still okay to think about them that way. It might be a little more complicated, and it might actually have a a good lesson there at the end. And I don't know how much of this you necessarily want to hear, but um, we've been looking into this. 
you would think that if varicose veins were just due to degeneration or weakening of the blood vessel, gosh, I have veins everywhere. If, if they're weakening and falling apart in my legs and my skin, what's going on in my heart? What about my brain? What about my kidneys? Well, We've been looking at cohorts of patients with and without varicose veins that seem similarly matched. And when we look at what happens to them over time, we actually find just the opposite of, of what you're describing. People in and around Olmstead County live on the average longer, maybe as much as seven years longer when they have varicose veins than if they don't. What? How can that be? Well, that doesn't seem to make any it, sense. It turns out that your body probably wants to manufacture some of these veins, particularly the little spider veins. When you see those, that's a sign that the body really wants to make blood vessels, that it's good at making blood vessels. It turns out that people who are are good at making blood vessels may make them down in your legs where you don't want them, but God forbid, if you get that hardening of the arteries, PAD, uh, other problems where you start to lose blood vessels, people who make varicose veins are better at making other kinds of blood vessels. So they'll make what we call collateral blood vessels, vessels that can form around a blocked blood vessel. They seem to be better at that. And as a result, they seem to have less heart attacks, less strokes, less other problems. You want to find a bunch of old people, you go find people who've got varicose veins and they so seem in, indestructible. Instead of looking down at your varicose veins and saying, oh, thanks, Mom, and thanks, Grandma, you should say, thank you. Well, we're still looking at that. That's exactly right. But they may be a curse and a blessing. Unbelievable. Never had heard that before. And you've just, uh, research you've recently done. Yeah, this is stuff that's still coming out. It's really, you know, too premature to, you know, be able to give you numbers and things. But this is, there's other things in the literature that support this point of view. So it's not, uh, it's not something we're making up. So other than the fact that if you've got varicose veins, you're probably going to live longer. They're not a, a functional problem, are they? I mean, they're purely, cos- is it purely cosmesis that bothers people about them? Sometimes. That's clearly the biggest problem is going to be cosmesis. People don't like the way they look. Uh, people don't like veins in general. You know, veins in the skin are a normal thing. We need them. If we don't have them, uh, we swell. We can't get blood back to our hearts. And yet nobody likes looking down at their hands or their arms or their feet and seeing, uh, you know, veins of any type, whether they're they're varicose or not. Well, you can zap these things now, can't you? We can. Tell us we, how you yeah, do that. We can fix, we can fix uh, veins that aren't working right. Varicose veins are veins that aren't working. They're, they're swamps. The blood's just kind of pooling in them at this point. And if we have to fix them, we've got a number of ways we can do it. Everybody's familiar with stripping. We all have a, you know, an Aunt Matilda or who had stripping, and she'll always tell you it was the worst thing that ever happened in her, in her life. They used to be horrible operations. They're not nearly so bad anymore. In fact, most of the stripping things we can do are just simple outpatient procedures. And what exactly were you doing when you're stripping someone's veins? When you strip someone's veins, you're going you're gonna to make a little tiny cut in the skin. We, we call it a stab. It's sometimes so small you don't even have to put a stitch in the little cut to close it up. But you make a little stab over the vein. You can reach in with a hook and you can pull out a segment of the vein. And by running along the vein with a little series of stabs, you can go ahead and uh, uh, re- remove the vein. You just take way. it out. Now, the second big way 
that we get rid of veins is with you know our new technology here. Everybody has heard of a laser therapy for veins. You know, that's probably the number one question I get asked. There is nothing sexier than than laser for treating anything. Anything. Yep, anything. Right. The way laser is done for the veins, we have a couple of types. We have a kind of a laser that we can shine on the skin that's good for getting rid of these little spider veins. We're, we really don't use it as widely. Uh, across the body, as you might think. It's mostly reserved at the Mayo practice for uh, small spider veins on the face. The other way we use laser, though, is as a substitute for stripping when it comes to the really big veins of the leg. We have a couple of veins, uh, one in particular called the great saphenous vein, which is the longest vein in the body, and it's got a terrible propensity to become varicose. When that happens, instead of having to make 10 or 15 or 20 little cuts to remove it, we can puncture the patient uh, maybe down around the calf or the ankle with a needle, slide a catheter up this vein we want to get rid of, and once we got it all the way into the vein, we can pull it back slowly but cauterize it shut by shining a laser beam through it, burn it shut from within. And uh, this is great. It's an outpatient procedure. You put the leg in a compression stocking, patient gets up, you kiss them goodbye, and they're off walking, shopping at the mall, eating at a restaurant. They don't really want to shovel snow or cut the lawn for a couple of days. But uh, <laughs> Now, the last way that we treat varicose veins is with a technique that I do a lot of. It's called sclerotherapy, and it involves injecting a caustic material into the veins that will irritate them, and by irritating them, you, you inflame them and cause them to close down and scar off. They give up. They give up. Whatever they, that poison they was you They don't put in like it. <laughs> the secret of a good sclerotherapy agent, you've hit a key word, poison. Oh my God, are you going to put a poison in my body? Well, you know, it's a poison that is specifically only harmful at a high concentration, not harmful at a low concentration. So it can go into the vein, cause damage, and then when it mixes with some blood and moves back into your bloodstream, it becomes harmless. I'll give you a good example of one that we can use, alcohol. You know, alcohol injected into a vein at a high concentration is deadly. But I don't know, Shives, have you ever had any alcohol in your blood at a low concentration? Is this, you know, it's, it's all right. It's not dangerous at a low concentration. So what happens? Do those vessels then, do the, does that varicose vein just dissolve over time and go away? Is it absorbed into the skin? Exactly. It, okay. What it does is, you know, a vein is a, is a tube, a little hollow pipe, and by inflaming it, It'll first clot off, and then it'll, as the inflammation goes away, it scars down. So it goes from being a little pipe to maybe being a, a thread or a guitar string. All right, Dr. Tom Rook, we don't strip him anymore. We've got several good ways to treat varicose veins. He is a blood vessel specialist at the Mayo Clinic. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about another vascular problem, peripheral artery disease, or PAD. Unlike varicose veins, PAD can be a sign of serious circulatory problems. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. We are back with Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Specialist, Dr. Tom Rook, Mayo Clinic Rochester. Well, unlike varicose veins, peripheral arterial disease, or PAD, can be a sign of serious cardiovascular disease, something really seriously wrong with your heart or blood vessels. Dr. Rook, just what is 
PAD? Well, everybody's familiar with the atherosclerotic blockages that can affect the heart and give us heart attacks or the kind that can affect the vessels of the neck and the brain and might give us a stroke. It turns out that those problems, these what we call plaques or areas of cholesterol and calcium deposition, not only occur in the heart and the brain, but they can occur everywhere in the body. And one of the most common places for them to occur is in the, the vessels of the, the arteries of the legs or the arteries leading to the legs. And when, that, when they take place there, we call it peripheral artery disease. All right. So it's like hardening of the arteries in, in any part of the body. In this case, it just happens to be peripheral to the, the central part. It's not the central part of the body. It's the, it's the leg. That's where, we, that's where the term comes from. But it really can refer, I think, to any disease that's not in the heart or the brain. So we also call kidney problems uh, related to atherosclerosis peripheral artery disease. We call uh, uh, problems in the intestines, if you were to get it. That would be a peripheral artery disease. But usually it's the, the legs, and very rarely, in fact, is it in the arms. Yeah. I was just going to say, if not the legs, why not the arms? Yeah, we don't really know. Nobody quite understands exactly why plaques build up in blood vessels exactly where they do? Why do we get them in the heart and the brain and the legs so commonly and so rarely in in other blood vessels? Well, yeah, the, the, the good news is you, you've got pretty good treatment for PAD of the, uh, of the legs, the lower extremities. But the bad news is that if your legs are affected, it's likely that other parts of your body, like your brain or your heart, are also affected, correct? That's exactly correct. In fact, there are many, many societies, many individuals who advocate that if, if uh, a person wants to find out whether or not they've got problems with hardening of the arteries, the cheapest, fastest, easiest, least invasive way to test that is to measure the blood pressure down in the ankles. You can compare that to the pressure in the arms, and if there's a difference, we call this the ankle brachial index test. That's one of the best predictors we have for whether a person has atherosclerosis. Really? What about if you can palpate the arteries in your foot? Well, that's always a good sign. If you can palpate <laughs> them, chances are they're, they're, very, they're normal or very close to normal. Uh, the fact that you can't palpate them, I don't want to worry people too much. Do you guys mean much. that you can Sometimes feel them or not feel, feel them? Yes, okay, that's what good. we mean. If you, can, if you can feel a pulse down in the feet, that's a good sign. If you can't find it, sometimes there's there's other reasons why you can't feel it. There may be a lot of tissue covering it, but uh, it can still be normal in some cases. All right, so for people who are taking their shoe and their sock off right now, explain to us where there's one artery on the top of the of the foot and there's another just behind what we call the medial malleus on the inner side of the foot behind that bony bone. That bulgy ankle bone is the yeah. key landmark there. If you feel right behind it, between that and your heel, and you press lightly enough, you should be able to feel your pulse. Same thing on the top of your foot. If you go about two-thirds of the way between the base of your toes and the ankles and you feel around, say, be, uh, with the, between those long bones, between the I'm first and second long bones, you'll, <laughs> you'll often be able to feel your pulse. Yep. Okay. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. What are some of the signs of PAD or symptoms that patients might have? Well, the, the, it really depends on how severe it is. It can be anything from asymptomatic. Most people are going to be asymptomatic. They won't know they have it. But as it becomes more severe, as the blockages get worse, the first thing that typically brings, brings the patient to your attention is that they have difficulty walking. 
when they walk, their legs begin to cramp up. So what happens is they've got plenty of blood flow getting there at rest, but not enough to let them perform. The word for that is claudication. It's a, it's a Latin word that means to limp because so many people who claudicate, that's, that's what happens is they start to walk funny the farther they walk. They begin to limp. If people have PAD and they're starting to have trouble walking, do they also have pain or do they just have trouble walking? Well, they can have trouble walking, but pain is an absolute thing that we look for. The pain typically begins when you walk a certain distance and people are very can very easily reproduce this distance they'll tell you i walk one block or two blocks or three blocks and then i get the pain when they stop the pain typically disappears in about one to three minutes and then they're able to move on again what can patients do to relieve the pad is there medications they take or what do you do to help patients all right well there's there's three major ways that you're going to treat pad there's actually several ways you'd like to reduce your cardiac risk factors. So you've got to lower your cholesterol and your hypertension and watch your diabetes. That's the first thing that you want to do. Uh, The second thing that you think about are specific medications. And we do have a couple of medications that may help. They really work by making your blood more slippery so it can slip through these blockages a little easier. The third thing is that you can try to open up the blockages where they occur. And this can be done with balloon catheters or these little metal tubes we call stents. Or when necessary, it can be done with surgery. And the arteries can be cleaned out or they can be bypassed. But I got to make a point here that the biggest thing that people like me typically recommend for folks who are having pain when they walk is that you need to exercise. You know, a little earlier we talked about this idea that you can grow new blood vessels around blocked ones. And it turns out that many people, if they simply exercise through their pain, rest, exercise through their pain again, rest, and by exercise I mean walk, this will stimulate the body to grow collateral blood vessels, little new vessels, vessels, new blood vessels around the blockages. And this has been shown time and time again to be the most effective way of treating the pain with walking that you get from PAD. Are we really at the point you, you talked about uh, doing to the leg arteries are the same thing you can do to the, the heart, that is balloon the blood vessel, enlarge it, put a stent in there to hold it open, which is like the spring of a in a ballpoint pen. But you can also, aren't you getting closer to, to being able to actually go in there with a roto-rooter and clean out the blood vessels, or are we there yet? Well, we're not there yet. Yes, we do have all kinds of, of gizmos and gadgets that go in there. The the problem is, is that while we can get these vessels open, it's uh, the body has a great knack for closing them back up again. So that's that's really the big problem. We get them open, but we can't keep them open. All right, blood vessel expert Dr. Tom Rook from the Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll have advice on how to get more out of your next visit with your doctor. It's all part of the Patient Revolution Project. And restless leg syndrome. It's uncomfortable and annoying, and it can rob you of sleep. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send an email to mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. How much running does it take to improve your health? I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Well, you don't have to put in as many miles as you might think. 
New research shows if you run six miles a week, you can add three to six years on your life. Mayo Clinic sports medicine specialist Dr. Edward Laskowski says... If you get out there and get moving, um, you're going to benefit your body, your heart and lung system, as well as protection from certain cancers. Now, what does periodontitis, or inflamed shrinking gums, mean to your heart? Apparently, a lot. Researchers from Sweden say it's linked to the buildup of plaque in your arteries. They want to find ways to diagnose and treat both issues. Now, speaking of your mouth, a European study shows smokers are more than three times more likely to lose their teeth than non-smokers. Their gums may appear healthy, but they're not. Another reason to try to quit smoking. Call 1-800-QUIT-NOW for help. For more health news, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Stop and think about it a moment. Have you ever left your doctor's office wishing you'd brought something up, asked another question, been more direct about what you wanted? Well, if you're like most people, your answer is probably yes. Most of us, maybe because we're afraid of appearing pushy or less than intelligent or because we don't want to be a burden to a busy caregiver, have not been as open or as direct as we maybe would have liked to have been during our doctor visit. The lack of openness and communication can adversely affect the relationship between the patient and their doctor. And that can lead to inappropriate treatment and non-compliance, not doing what your doctor told you to do, which can also interfere with successful care. There's an initiative called the Patient Revolution Project that's trying to get at the nuts and bolts of the patient-caregiver relationship in an effort to make it more effective. Maggie Breslin is the creative director of the Patient Revolution Project, and she joins us in our studio here, along with Dr. Victor Montori. Dr. Montori is an endocrinologist at Mayo Clinic, a medical director of the Patient Revolution Project, and a frequent guest here on Mayo Clinic Radio. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Maggie, Dr. Montori, thanks so much for being with us. Same, Maggie, I have to ask you. It says you are on your website. You're a designer, you're a researcher, and you're a writer, and you have a unique background in healthcare delivery. Uh So when did you then get interested in improving the doctor-patient relationship, and and what was wrong with it? What is wrong with it? (laughs) Well, I think... um you learn very quickly when you start doing research on any number of topics, any number of healthcare topics, that physician-patient communication, how they talk to each other, what they talk about, is at the root of good care. Um, and if you can focus in and try and improve and create systems that are primarily about supporting and encouraging meaningful dialogue between those two people in that room, then the ripple effects can transform healthcare in incredible ways. So it was a, a common theme that we kept seeing over and over. It was uh, a topic that we were able to explore a lot in our work with um, Victor around shared decision making and minimally disruptive medicine. And uh, as we uh, kind of grew and, and were able to kind of work together, we recognized that, wow, we were getting the opportunity to build a lot of different um, tools and interventions, uh, primarily from the clinical side. And we had this idea on the back of our heads, like, wow, wouldn't it be amazing if we could build up a similar program that was developing tools and innova- innovations, but primarily to put in the hands of patients for them to bring into their clinical encounters. So teaching patients 
Well, I was going to say teaching patients to be better patients, but that's not quite right. It's not quite right because sometimes when we define better patients, what we mean by that is uh, better patients as defined by the clinical community. Which the often, compliance piece. It often means how do we get patients to do what we would like them to do. Uh, and I think that the reality is uh, patients live complex lives. Healthcare is uh, ambiguous and messy. And that a lot of the role of, of the clinical community is to help patients navigate what options may be available to them so that they can live the best life they possibly can with the least impact from the, the solutions that we put out there. So when we think about compliance, uh, we think about patients acting in their own best interest, uh, guided by the clinician. And um, the problem is that uh, in particularly for complex patients or living in complex situations, what's best for them is something that is not immediately obvious just starting from the medical knowledge. One has to understand the knowledge about their lives. And even patients who have bought into the program and the program actually fits their current circumstance can be derailed by life. And so a patient uh, of mine that was doing very well in terms of her diabetes all of a sudden begins to deteriorate in their ability to take care of themselves. And when you start exploring why that might be the case, you find out that they're having significant problems at home, financial problems, difficulties at work, etc. And so those things now have changed the circumstances in which the treatment has to work and the treatment no longer fits. The ability to communicate with patients and for patients to express those issues and find that it's valid to bring those issues into the consultation is something we're trying to move forward with with the Patient Revolution Project. Oh, yeah, I, I totally understand that. Best circumstances may change uh, or the, the, the treatment that you prescribe may be very difficult for the, for the patient, but how do you change that? Well, so the idea behind the Patient Revolution Project is to advance um, tools and interventions that help patients be able to share that knowledge with the clinician before the decision has been made. So to be able to recognize uh, I have a lot of things going on in my life or these are the things that I'm really thinking about as I think about what, how do I get a solution or a treatment for this particular condition or issue that I have and to be able to share that information about their lives with the physician at the beginning or at the first consultation that they have so that the recommendations that come are already taking that piece of information into account. Um, so it's really about how can we encourage and support patients in sort of proactively sharing information with their clinician about their lives uh, so that that can impact the care plan. We've seen many patients, uh, who, and we've talked to many patients who have told us that they think that bringing such issues into the consultation is not pertinent, that they're, and maybe they learn that from our faces or how we respond to when they actually do, but, but the truth is they don't know that it is pertinent to bring up issues of their home life, their, um, their work situation, their financial issues into the consultation, or that they're gonna, that gonna rep, it's going to represent a big burden on the clinician or, or it's going to waste their time. And so they edit themselves, and they, they just don't bring those issues up. Part of the work that we're doing is to say, no, 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 if we don't, as clinicians, we don't know about that, we're going to get the treatment wrong, and we're not going to be able to address your needs. Just before we started, you said it's more about push than pull. Mm -hmm. Explain what that means when it comes to patients. Yeah, a lot of healthcare innovation that we do is a, is a pull mechanism. How do we help the clinic and the institution 
pull important information from the patient, which the, we can then use to uh, create care plans or advance care. Um, the Patient Revolution Project is a push model. What, how can we teach and skill and support patients in terms of pushing the information at the clinician and say, here's something important about me that you need to know and that I want you to consider when you're thinking about how to treat me for this particular issue. And that uh, we, th- we think ultimately that the combination of the push and the pull that's happening within any clinical encounter can lead to the best possible outcome. One of the the parts of tools and skilling is to teach people to be able to get to the point more quickly, um, to be able to isolate the things that are most important to them, and then that makes it actually, the back and forth exchange happens much more quickly. Uh, And that's something that we have seen oftentimes in use with the tools and certainly with the shared decision-making tools. I also think it's, uh, you have to potentially change uh, the scale at which you're thinking about efficiency. So yes, you can bring a patient in every three months for a 10-minute visit and get them in and out, Uh, but if you find that they're not really meeting their goals and they're not really uh, advancing the, uh, achieving the type of care that you would like them to, to have, then that's ultimately inefficient. So if we can think about it more in terms of years uh, or at a much higher scale efficiency, I think if you have a meaningful conversation with a patient early on in a relationship with them, and then you can use that knowledge and that building rapport that you've had to continue making sure that the care plan that you're creating fits into their lives, that's ultimately a much more efficient way of delivering healthcare. And Perhaps even more importantly than that, it's a much more caring and kind way of being to deliver health care. And it's one that's going to be more meaningful to the patient and actually more meaningful to the clinician. Maggie Breslin is the creative director of the Patient Revolution Project. Thanks for coming and telling us about it. Thank you so much for having me. And for Dr. Victor Montori as well. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, restless leg syndrome. It's an uncontrollable urge to move your legs, and it's a major cause of insomnia. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shine. And I'm Tracy McRae. Restless leg syndrome, or RLS. It's a condition where you have this uncontrollable urge to move your legs. It's usually due to discomfort. Your legs may throb or they ache or there might be the pulling, creeping, or other unpleasant sensation. RLS typically occurs in the evening or at night when you're sitting or lying down or when you're ready to go to bed. Moving your legs can ease the discomfort temporarily in most people. Restless leg syndrome can occur at any age, even, Tom, in children. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, and in serious cases, it can lead to insomnia and depression. Here to explain RLS and how it's treated is sleep disorders specialist, Dr. Suresh Kadigal. Welcome to the program, Dr. Kadigal. It's great to have you back. Oh, thanks so much, Tracy. Dr. Kadigal, it's a strange phenomenon, isn't it? And actually, uh, not all that uncommon. I think I recently read that it can affect, some have estimated that it affects up to 10% of the population. Yes, um, you know, the, in the adults, it's uh, far more common, and uh, you're right, it may affect uh, about 10% of the adult population. In uh, children, uh, there are good uh, studies to indicate, the studies from U.S. and uh, United Kingdom, that about uh, 2% of all children can have restless leg syndrome. Now, when we compare to attention deficit disorder, which is another common school-related condition, that has a, about a 5% prevalence. So RLS is up there. Pretty it's, common. What about men versus women? There's a slight uh, female uh, predominance. I think uh, young women were probably uh, more likely to get restless legs uh, than men. 
whereas in children it seems to be equally prevalent both boys and girls is there any <clears throat> difference in uh between restless leg syndrome and what i seem to notice as i'm falling asleep at night that one of my legs will twitch is it the same line or is it a completely different thing uh, it's different because we all have those jerks or startles the one or two jerks of the body as we are drifting off to sleep and those are also called hypnic starts and hypnic Yes, hypnic H Y P N I C. Hypnic. You got related. the hypnics over there. <laughs> <laughs> so, related to just falling asleep, and uh, uh, that is actually a very normal f- phenomenon, and we all get it. And nothing to worry at all. It's not epilepsy or anything. It's a completely different thing, though, from restless legs. Yes. Yeah, when you say that to someone who has restless legs, they probably want to punch my lights out, huh? <laughs> they say, I yes. wish it was just once or twice, and that was it. You're right. It's, it's very bothersome. It's, imagine you've been on a plane uh, on a long flight, like four or five hours or so, and then if you've been sitting that long in the seat, you'll feel that urge to stretch your legs and get up, you know, and, and, and that's what restless legs is like. It's a, sort of a creepy crawly feeling it's a very uncomfortable feeling and uh, it often comes on in the evening or at night and it is relieved a little bit by stretching the legs or moving about a little bit but the moment you keep your legs still it kind of comes right back do we have any idea as as common as this problem is what causes it there may be if you look at um, people below the age of 40, uh, there is often a genetic uh, tendency. It seems to run in families. Below the age of what? Below the age of 40. 40, 40 okay. Yes, yeah. And uh, over the age of 40, it may be related to other changes of, uh, in the nervous system that we don't fully understand. And how do you make the diagnosis? There's no test for restless legs, is there? So... It really depends whether we're talking about adults or children. In the adults, very often the the key features are there's this discomfort that comes on in the evening or at night. So and this there's a tremendous urge to move the legs, and this urge to move the legs is made worse by keeping still, and it is relieved partially by movement of the limbs. And so those are the typical features in the adults. So in adults, very often, the history is enough to make the diagnosis, and one doesn't really need to resort to sleep studies. Now, children is a little different because children are not able to express the symptoms that they are experiencing. So in children, very often, uh, we need some backup uh, information, so we will use uh, an overnight sleep study at times. So you just actually watch them and see if that the, yes. you can tell by watching. Yeah, yes, and they, you know there is a, when we do overnight sleep studies, we record the electrical activity of the muscles of the legs, mm-hmm. or leg EMG as it's called, and that also gives us an idea whether this is happening. When people start to experience RLS, do they have it every single night, or does it start once a week or once a month and then just start to progress? What usually happens? Good question. Uh, Really, it fluctuates. If it's mild, it may occur occasionally. But if it's more severe, it might start occurring uh, two, three times a week or almost nightly. So I think it can progress. What is a common treatment? What do you do? Everybody who has it wants to know. (laughs) Yeah, what do you do? So in young people, um, including children, iron deficiency seems to be a major 
player. Is that right? Yes. They're not eating their spinach. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I think uh, spinach, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, these are good sources of iron. Uh, and um, so it seems that uh, low levels of iron in the nervous system affect the you know the manufacturing or synthesis of a neurotransmitter called dopamine so if you don't have enough iron we don't make enough dopamine mm. if we don't make enough dopamine then one might get restless leg syndrome so for kids is it as easy as increase some iron in their diet and they can get rid of restless <clears throat> legs in the ideal world yes that's what we wow. recommend uh, but lots lots of times it's also important to pay attention to the diet and uh, make sure that the, the child is uh, really receiving uh, adequate amount of iron-containing foods, spinach, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, as you mentioned. And uh, the other issue, I think, is this concern about milk. You know, we've always heard that milk does a body good. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, certainly milk is important for the growth of teeth and bones. But milk, actually, excessive milk consumption might interfere with iron absorption from the stomach. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's something to be aware of. Uh, and other times uh, we may have situations where a child is on some um, antacid medication. And if they're on antacids for long periods of time, that can interfere with iron absorption because iron really needs an acid pH in the stomach for absorption. All right. So what about adults? Is iron the culprit there? Now, sometimes we've seen adults who have bariatric surgery, you know, for losing weight. They may get major surgeries on the stomach. And uh, then, and this, the iron is absorbed from the stomach and the duodenum, this upper part of the intestine. So uh, if they don't have uh, enough of a surface oh. to absorb iron, so they, it could be a, a problem too in adults as well. But other times adults, uh, you know, it's just really low levels of dopamine and there are medications available which are really approved by the FDA for use in adults and they can be utilized. Well, that's the same problem in Parkinson's disease, isn't it? Somewhat similar, yes. Not enough dopamine. Yes, but it may be that the dopamine uh, deficiency in Parkinson's is a a different side in the brain brain. and the spinal cord, whereas in restless legs, it may be at a different spot. But that's one of the treatments for restless leg is giving the patient dopamine. Uh, Dopamine-like substances uh, called dopamine receptor agonists, yes. Can you test for dopamine in the blood? Is it as simple as a blood test? Um, Unfortunately, no, because I think uh, the dopamine levels in the blood may not reflect what's actually happening in the brain. So So is it an easy fix once you figure out why someone is is uh, experiencing restless legs? Yeah, I, I, it's relatively. I mean, I, I think it's important to recognize that uh, um, if it is properly diagnosed, the first thing, of course, is to try to um, uh, fix the iron deficiency by supplementing orderly with iron. And that seems to work. Uh, although there are side effects of iron one needs to be aware of, like constipation, etc. Sometimes they get constipated, we may use a stool softener to help them. Then change, making sure that the diet is appropriate. I think that um, spinach, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, uh, these are important. Now, I was mentioning earlier about milk. One also perhaps needs to be careful about soy products. Soy also has phytates, which interfere with uh, iron absorption. So I think one has to make sure that the diet is indeed balanced. 
And uh, if the iron absorption doesn't work, there are uh, one go to the ne- one goes to the next step of using specific medications. We're just at about about out of time, but are, are there any over-the-counter medications <coughs> that help with this problem? Certainly, iron uh, could be well, but I would not recommend uh, oh, just uh, medications uh, over-the-counter unless one is really sure. I think one has to be careful with some of that some of the medicines actually like Benadryl, et cetera, might worsen restless legs. So I'd be careful. It's good to get it checked out by the doctor. All right. We've been talking about restless leg syndrome with Mayo Clinic Sleep Disorders Specialist, Dr. Suresh Kodagal. Thanks for being on the program, Dr. Kodagal. We, we appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. My pleasure. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social media editor, Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.